years of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. As I've mentioned at the start of the podcast, I am often told that I talk to many people about their spiritual journeys, but that I have never shared my own path. Although I share snippets of my story quite often, it was suggested that I do a recording of my own story. Being clean and sober for over eight years now, I've told my story often in NA, AA and SAA meetings, conventions and conferences, but I've never shared my story with non-addicts. I have no idea who listens to meet me in the field, but just the idea that I may be sharing with people who may not get me freaked me out and it made me very nervous. I felt telling my story to a microphone very difficult and I reckon you can hear that clearly in the recording. I thought about re-recording it but decided against it. I think this is the authentic me, the me with my fears, insecurities and vulnerabilities. I hope you get something out of my story. This podcast is supported by The First Layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There is also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on The First Layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. Enjoy this extensive monologue. I hope you manage to stay awake. If not, enjoy your nap. Hi everyone. I've been asked a few times over the past few weeks, months, about my own journey spiritually. People say that I comment a lot and I give a lot of snippets on my own journey, but that I've never given a full picture of what happened for me spiritually. So I thought the time has come to tell my story. I don't have anybody to interview me. I could pull a kind of a psycho trick and ask myself questions and answer myself, but um, I don't know whether that will be too creepy or maybe highly entertaining. But let's rather stick to me telling my story. I was born into a conservative Afrikaans family. And we lived in um, the old Sophia town, which became Trihomf in the early 60s and then became Sophia town again later on. Um, my parents bought their house when the first housing went up there. So very politically incorrect. But it is what it is, huh? Right. So, Klein Freddy is being born in 1967 in Triumph to a Dutch Reformed family. As far as I can remember, my family's always gone to church. I'm the youngest of four children, and we're all two years apart. So when I was born, I had a brother of two, a sister of four, and another sister of six. And... The oldest one was already in school, so I got used to Sundays, it was church, and after that it was Sunday school. Also on Wednesdays, Wednesdays afternoons, as children we attended something we called Kinnekrans. I don't know what that is in English, but it was it was fun. We went to a lady about three or four houses down the road from us, and she attended some other church, but 
part of what we did was we sang songs, religious obviously, she, and she would tell us a Bible story with pictures that she attached to a felt board and she would dish out sweeties. And it was large amounts of fun. What I will never forget about that was living in the high felt while we were at Kanakrans, one of the Johannesburg thunderstorms would rage outside. And when we left, we always played with our bare feet in the puddles and the water running in the street. It was lovely. Got home quite filthy, obviously, but it was great fun. So for me, the path was religion. We had a children's Bible when I grew up and that was read to us. I can't remember whether my father or mother read to us. I can't remember them doing it. I think mostly it was my older sister who read us the stories. But what I loved about the children's Bible was the pictures in it. The pictures were really colorful and I really enjoyed it. I connected with the stories. I liked the stories, but I, I can't recall whether I really believed them as a child. It, it became later in my life where I became very, very cynical about those stories. I, I can't recall that I've ever really believed, for instance, that Daniel was thrown in a lion's den and that an angel came and locked the lion's mouths. It's a nice story, but I don't think I ever believed it. Yeah, so when I turned five or six, I also started going to church and I also started to go to Sunday school. And it just wasn't questioned. It was what, what had to be done. So I did it. At the age of five, something happened in my life that made me think that there's something not quite right. And that was that my best friend was the girl across the road from me. She was about a year older than I was. And um, that one specific afternoon, we played wedding. And I felt really kind of irritated and angry the whole afternoon about what we were doing. And it suddenly dawned on me that I'm angry because I wanted to be the bride. And... It sounds really, really stupid, but it was a very significant day in my life because even though I realized what I was thinking, it never crossed my mind that that type of thinking is in any way okay. I was convinced that my thinking that way is really bad. And if anybody knows about my thinking, I will be seriously reprimanded, I will definitely be punished, and that I will possibly get um, rejected and even abandoned. So that's the stuff that went through my head. That whatever I was thinking made me unacceptable as a person. And that went with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And that guilt and shame became a very important part in my spiritual journey, especially religious-wise, because the Christian Bible, for me as I understood it at that stage, did not accommodate, I didn't feel that I was accommodated as 
as a failure because I felt like a failure. I felt like a failure as a human being. And all I knew and all I can remember was that I felt so guilty that I couldn't believe that God could love me. I felt I felt that I would be judged and that I would be punished. So as I grew older and older, religion for me brought a lot of fear with it. I obviously didn't want to go to hell. I mean, who wants to go to a place that burns it to a new for the life of me, I didn't want to go to hell. But I also knew that there's no way that I would go into heaven thinking the type of things that I did think. So I lived my life trying to be the best boy possible and to come a hell or high water, not to let anybody know what I thought or the thoughts that came into my head. So that became, from a very young age, that became a secret that I was hiding. I didn't know what it was. I had no idea what it meant for me to want to wear a dress while we playing. So I went through primary school doing exactly what I need to do and really being a good boy, trying my utmost, but feeling very, very anxious as a child. I was a very anxious child. I walked in my sleep until quite an old age. Well, that being kind of 12, probably 12, 13. Anyway, so at the age of 12, I went to high school and now I was in puberty and I somehow felt again that I'm, I'm different. I didn't relate to the opposite sex the way that my classmates did or my friends did. And at that stage, I became very aware of the fact that I am definitely more attracted to the boys in my class than to the girls. But yet again, having grown up Afrikaans, conservative, I always jokingly say that my parents never warned me about two things. One was men and the other was drugs. Today I am a gay drug addict. So anyway, that is tongue-in-cheek because I don't blame them for that at all. I'm 100% convinced my parents did their best. And the best was to, what they knew was to bring the children to, to the Lord and make sure that they follow his path. At the age of 12 or 13, being in puberty with the hormones ranging all over the place and emotions all over the place, with me trying to be a good boy, I just suppressed everything. I just pretended that, that those kind of things are not happening. And the more I felt and thought that what I was thinking about the boys in my class were wrong, the more I just tried to be as good at, as I possibly could. And I did everything just to not be rejected, just to be accepted. So I became this good boy and I became a complete and utter people pleaser. I was just whatever you wanted me to be, just accept me, just... Be okay with me. Just don't reject me. So I had these masks for all occasions. But at the same time, I'll never forget that I, I felt that the lie that I was living in my head from the age of five became a bigger lie. It was as if I kind of grasped the severity of 
the secret that I'm keeping, but I still didn't realize what it was. Anyway, at the same time, at school, something very strange happened, and that was that I, I popped into being this really good athlete. In primary school, I always kind of ran, but in high school, something just happened, and I became really good at it. From standard six, I was the fastest boy in school. And as we all know, in, in high school, that is quite a prestigious thing. So I suddenly realized that by being a good athlete, I can get the acceptance that I'm so afraid of not getting. So suddenly I was not only trying to be a, a good boy, I worked my ass off to be liked by everybody, but I suddenly also had this thing, this talent that gave me acceptance. But with that came the constant anxiety that I'm going to be seen as a fake. I'm going to be caught out for being a fake. And that really caused a lot of anxiety in my life. Also at the same time, a third thing happened. And that was that I was sitting in church one Sunday morning with my whole family and the duomini, or I suppose in English we'll call him a priest, but we called him a duomini. The duomini asked us to do what we call the geloofsbeleidnis. I suppose in English it will be a declaration of your belief system or something, where you stand up as a congregation and you recite these this list of things that we as a church-based congregation that we as a congregation believe in and, and, and follow and follow religiously. And the Dumni asked that specific day to please do him a favor to not get up and say these things if you don't believe it. Because ultimately all you're going to do is you're going to lie to God, you're going to lie to the congregation and you're going to lie to yourself. So if you don't believe this stuff, please rather not get up and don't say it. And my first feeling was, oh, wow, okay, so I don't have to get up and say this. And my second thing was, oh, my God, there is no way that I'm going to sit down while the whole family gets up and having to face the wrath of especially my mother after church. So I got up and I said it. And now I knew I am, I'm a lying son of a bitch. If I could do that, then how bad am I really as a person? And if I get caught out, then I will definitely be severely punished and I will definitely be rejected, rejected or abandoned. And the shame just got worse. And as the shame got more, I ran faster, I trained harder, I studied harder, I did, every, I did a vast amount of, of extramural activities at school just to feel that I'm okay. I placed a lot of pressure on me. I kept on dating girls. I kept on trying to pretend that I'm okay. But deep inside me, I just felt such a fraud. I felt so anxious. It was, I hated my teenage years. I escaped in reading. My mother always said I went into solitary confinement when I read a book because I just, I couldn't engage. I just, just didn't want to. I just completely escaped into the fantasy of, of my reading. And, yeah, training, 
athletics became another escape. So between living in a fantasy, as in my books, but I also kind of built fantasies in my head. I remember as a child that I could for days walk around and walk around with a fantasy of being a king, for instance, and everybody bowing down for me and all this kind of stuff. So fantasy was possibly my first addiction, and that was followed by by running. I did both of those things definitely to escape, to escape from whatever I was feeling. Two events came up for me about religion while I was kind of in my teenage teenage years. Yeah, the one was that I remember so well that I would get into bed at night and I wouldn't want to pray because why would I? I don't believe in what I'm praying to. But at the same time, I would have such, such fear of what will happen if I die during the night and, and I don't go to heaven. So what I did was I prayed. The second thing is that because I was such an anxious person and because athletics was such an important part of my life, and so as you, I've said it so often that I've put a lot of pressure on me, but I would always go into athletics meetings, especially the bigger meetings, the provincial championships, the South African championships, those type of things. I would really be extremely anxious. And um, in one of those occasions, driving to a meeting in Germiston, that was possibly the Transvaal Championships, I was sitting in the back of the car being white and being nauseous and being ugh, just feeling awful. My mother looked in the mirror and she said to me, don't worry, my child, just pray hard. And I looked up and I said to her, the problem is, if I get to the final, I'm one of eight that's praying to the same God. So I never had that feeling that I was being cared for. It was always a question of kind of, I'm sharing this being with billions of people. And that never stood very well for me. I think it was my, my ego-centeredness, my, my self-centeredness that played a big role in my life then. Obviously, mom wasn't very happy with my response, but that was really the way I felt. And I always find it interesting when I watch athletics on television as well, watching more than two or three athletes making the cross on their chests as they go into the blocks. And I always think, I wonder which one God is going to favor and why specifically that one. So I left high school with two ulcers and and uh, and quite a lot of athletic achievements which definitely defined me of who I was a, as a person. I went to varsity, there I continued to run and did everything I needed to do. Being Now I had a sports bursary, an academic bursary, a leadership bursary and felt a lot of pressure. And the first thing I let go was the leadership. I just couldn't bother to have that stress on me as well. But I had to keep on running well to keep my athletic and my academic bursaries. And I had to do keep on doing well academically as well. But um, I've never been a really good student. I worked really hard, but I've never been, been a good student. And at Varsity, with the workload being as much as it was, and with me studying the way I did, I just 
didn't do well at all. So the only thing that became a, a source of acknowledgement for me was my athletics. So that now became the ultimate thing that I had to do and I had to do well. So I, I trained really hard and I did quite well. Um, up until that stage, I came second twice in the South African Championships in the um, hurdles for boys. In matric, it was a s- under 1700 meter hurdles and first year varsity was the under 1910 meter hurdles. But the bottom line was that I defined myself as Freddie, the guy who runs, the guy who hurdles and this is what he needs to do. I was still dating girls to try and be okay. But more and more I just realized that I am attracted to men. And that is where that's how I want to live my life. I want to I want to feel the intimacy that men had to offer me. I remember praying. I pr- prayed so hard for for those feelings to be removed. And even while dating girls at varsity and going to church with them, while I would sit next to them in church, I would pray for my feelings for, for, for men to be removed. And the guilt just got worse and worse and worse because I was still lying to myself and now I'm hurting other people in the process as well. Anyway, so after varsity, I was called up to go and do military service. And I ended up in the, in the medics, Military Psychological Institute. And there I worked as an assistant psychologist because I studied psychology and sociology. By that stage, I had a BA with psychology and sociology as majors, and I had an honors degree in sociology, specializing in group dynamics, industrial sociology, and family sociology. When I went to the army, I, I got lost. I got lost in the system. So even though I was supposed to run and train for the South African military championships, I couldn't because whenever I went to report for training, my name wasn't on the list. And eventually one day when I was found, I was crapped out terribly for where was I? And it was just a big balls up. But the bottom line was that was when I stopped running. And the minute I stopped running, it was as if life just caught up with me. And that was when I was introduced to, I guess I was introduced to alcohol for the first time because I came from a family where there was a moderate amount of drinking. Father definitely binged drink at stages through his life. But I started drinking. And I started drinking with gay abundance and with perfectionistic tendencies. So I think I'd kind of drank alcoholically right from the start. It was also in, in the army where I got introduced to marijuana. And as far as marijuana goes, the first time I used it, it was, it was what I was looking for all my life. I just absolutely loved that feeling of relaxation, of I just felt so okay while I was high. It was just absolutely amazing. I remember throwing up the first few times that I smoked it, but that was definitely not enough of a deterrent. So I just pushed through and I kept on doing it. And so in the military, my life definitely revolved around drinking a lot and trying to smoke marijuana as often as possible. So I started hanging out with people who who did that. 
And also, the next thing that happened was that I came out of the closet. Pressure of being in the closet just became too much, and I, I surrendered to it. So I acknowledged to myself, to some friends, and not to my family that I was going. But by that time, I've stopped going to church, and because I knew the Bible quite well, I became quite blasphemous. And I, I ended up in a circle of friends who and we all shared the same how can I put it? Um, uh, we all shared the same type of journey, as in coming out in our lives, starting to use drugs, starting to use alcohol excessively, being Afrikaans and not exactly being conservative, being gay. It was an interesting part of my life. What I realized afterwards that was that I didn't even know that I was part of the full Frey Beweging listening to Johannes Kerk, Oral and Quizkompais and all those type of music. But anyway, that was definitely the start of my using. And that was when I suddenly, no, after the military, I did quite well in military. I in a certain way, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the freedom. I enjoyed the relaxation. I enjoyed the no responsibility. I loved. I loved the fact that I, I knew where I was going to sleep. I knew what my meals were, where my meals were coming from, and all I had to do was get up in the morning and show up for work, and the rest were all decided for me. That was really comfortable. I did not miss religion, and I really enjoyed the circle I was in. That that we were all quite bright. And we used our knowledge of the Bible to, to be extremely blasphemous. And we thought it was really, really funny. So after army, I started working. And the drinking continued, the using continued. But I worked quite hard because I realized that if I don't work well, what else do I have? Because work became mine. I won't call it an addiction, but definitely an obsession because that was the only thing that I that I still had that I could be affirmed by telling that I'm doing a good job, by getting promotions when they do, getting bonuses if they are, those type of things. So um, that was life for the next few years until about 1993 when after a traumatic breakup, I fled Gauteng and came down to Cape Town to do parliamentary service. I was working for the Department of Public Works and Home Affairs at that stage and I got accepted into the personal staff of the Director General of, of Public Works and Land Affairs. So I was going to work in Cape Town for six months and then when Parliament was in sitting and when Parliament wasn't in session I would move back up to Pretoria. And that was lovely. So I got away from the bad breakup. I got away from the insular group of friends that I was in. And I'll never forget that I I went to a movie on my own one Saturday or Sunday afternoon. And I walked out of the movie and I thought to myself, did I enjoy this? And I didn't know. I didn't know whether I enjoyed the movie or not. So leaving the theatre, I had to ask myself, did I enjoy the movie? And I couldn't answer myself. I did not know whether I actually liked the movie or not. Because I, I didn't have a f group of friends 
to tell me whether I enjoyed the movie or not, or I didn't have a group of friends whom I had to play to, to be accepted. And I suddenly realized that, oh my God, I'm kind of fucked. I'm, who am I? What am I? Where do I stand in life? It was really, really a difficult thing. So I suppose in a way that's when, when Freddie started searching for Freddie. And I'm not sure that Freddie liked what Freddie saw. So, frankly, I think I was kind of lost. All I had was, was my work that was some form of anchor to me. So, like people do with drugs, people who do drugs, people who wanted to do drugs, got into a group of a circle of friends who drank a lot and nothing changed. I worked hard and I played really hard, trying to escape reality around every corner. And that lasted until I met my then boyfriend. And I introduced him to smoking marijuana. I introduced him to drinking a lot. And we partied together and we drank a lot together. And there was definitely no no form of basis of religion or of spirituality or anything at that stage in my life. There was just nothing. To make a very long story short, in that period between 1993 and 2009, well, that's a 16-year period. I never really counted it. My drug using became more frequent. I used more. I started using heavier drugs and life just became completely unbearable. And the less I could handle life, the more I used and the more I drank. And I just, I just couldn't live life. My life was a complete, complete and utter fuck up. There is no other way to say that. I've, I've left so many people hurt and I've hurt myself so badly. I now believe that was my journey. So on the 23rd of November 2009, something happened that was absolutely freaky. My husband then was in the bathroom busy shaving and he was running late for work. And I was angry because I wanted him to leave so that I can call the dealer and order a gram of cocaine so that I could get my lift for the day. And I, I was busy making sandwiches in the kitchen and getting really irritated with him being late. So I turned around and I walked up to the bathroom and I stood in the bathroom door and he looked up from the mirror. And as he looked up, he could see me standing in the, in the bathroom door. So I look up and I see him and I see myself. So he looked up and he said to me, what's wrong? And I said to him, I've developed an alcohol problem. I need help. I don't know where those words came from. I had no intention of asking for help. The interesting thing is that I'm, I lied even in asking for help. The problem was alcohol, yeah, but there was a lot of other problems as well. He didn't know that I was completely addicted to cocaine. So that was when this journey started. I basically collapsed on the floor there and I started crying. We didn't know where to get help. We didn't know what to do. All we knew that I would probably have to go to rehab. We didn't know how that worked. Anyway, we made an appointment with my doctor, saw my doctor, and he still said to me, 
<laughs> you see what I mean? But Freddie, a few months ago, when you were here for a checkup or something, I asked you how much you drank and you lied to me. And I kind of went, of course I lied to you. I wasn't ready to stop drinking. And I felt quite judged. But anyway, that's besides the point. So he said he didn't really know. He, I, I need to go to rehab, but he didn't really know what, where, when, how. And he recalled that he had a flyer for some other rehab facility in his desk drawer. So he found it and he called them and booked a bed for me. And later that afternoon, I was checked into rehab. About the first or second weekend in treatment, my brother came to visit me. And he said to me, Okay, so now you're in rehab. And I went onto the website for the rehab facility and I looked at and I saw that they followed the 12 steps. And I see that this 12 step piece has a lot of the has a lot of God in it. So what are you going to do about that? And by that time I was given a what we call a big book, which is the basic text for Alcoholics Anonymous. When I checked into the rehab, I was given a big book. So I started reading that. And I obviously read the steps and I saw God. But what I also saw was the words of your understanding next to it. So I just clung to this thing that I knew I need to find a higher power. But that it didn't have to be the religious God. I just, as you know, from the age of 13, I didn't really believe. I didn't believe at all, actually. But I'd realized that if I want to get clean and stay clean, that I will need to find a higher power. And I knew that my life was fucked. So step one was definitely done and dusted. I knew that I was powerless and that my life was unmanageable. And um, I got step two, that a higher power could restore me to sanity. But now I needed to find that higher power. And one morning at six o'clock, I was standing underneath a weeping willow next to a little pond. Actually, a big dam. Not a big dam, a dam. A huge pond, a small dam. And um, smoking a cigarette. And that's in Cape Town. And the wind was blowing through the leaves of the weeping willow. And I heard the shh that the leaves made. And it suddenly dawned on me that there's so much energy in the wind. So if I can start tapping into the wind energy to help me to stay clean, the wind won't miss it. There's so much energy there, so I should be okay. So I suddenly realized that I can make the wind my higher power. So from that day, the wind became my higher power. And from there, it very quickly escalated to a... Once I was clean, I became very aware of life around me because I was actually present for life around me. So... I was in a treatment center in Hart Bay and I never realized that Hart Bay is actually quite beautiful. So there were all these mountains and trees and I became acutely aware of nature around me. And over a very short period of time, my higher power became nature. And I remember the first night that I decided, well, I suppose if I've got the higher power, I need to start praying to it. And I was lying in bed and by God, I wasn't going to pray because if I pray, it's going to be mean I'm religious and I wasn't. So I was lying in my bed and I put my hands on top of my chest and I kind of crossed over my crossed over each other, nearly like somebody would lie in a coffin. And I started saying, hello, how are you? So this conversation with nature, with my God, started like this one-sided telephone conversation. And I chatted with her. 
I chatted with nature and I expressed my fears and whatever. I can't remember with the detail, but what I remember is I came to the end of the prayer and I, I realized that I need to end this prayer somehow, but I can't say amen because that would actually make it a prayer. This wasn't a prayer. I was just talking to my higher power. So I just said, okay, bye, speak to you again. And it felt good. And that's how, that, that was, that's how I started praying. And I was in recovery a few months when, for the first time, I actually went on my knees and I started praying on my knees. Over a period of time, nature became what I call Natura. And Natura is this wonderful, wonderful, big black woman with flabby arms and big chests. And she has this round face with, she's always smiling and She's always willing and ready to receive me into her, into her arms. And that is where I feel safe. And I started calling her God. And I have absolutely no problem to call her God. Because I was taught very early in recovery that God stands for good orderly direction. So it becomes your gut. And that's something else I was taught in treatment is trust your gut, Freddie. So once you stop using drugs and you live clean and sober and you have some form of spiritual connection, then you can start trusting your gut because that is where, that's where God is. God is inside you. So if you have this unpleasant feeling inside you, that's 10 to 1 God telling you that whatever you're about to do is not cool or wherever you're about to uh, get yourself involved in that's possibly not right and i was also taught that the 12 steps is a spiritual program and we try our utmost to we try to get rid of our character defects because it's invariably our defects that get us into trouble and we try and replace our defects by the spiritual principles and the spiritual principles are the basic stuff love compassion caring honesty Willingness, open-mindedness, trust, hope, faith. All those type of things. It's just, it's the good things in life. So stop doing the bad and being the bad and doing what fucks you up and make healthy choices for yourself. And I, that really, really resonated with me. So I started working the 12 steps and I worked it with addictive and gay abundance and and it worked. It started working. I started feeling better. My life started changing. And the more I spoke to Natura, the more I liked her, the more I felt cared for, the more I felt loved and accepted. And I came to the conclusion that Natura isn't forgiving because she doesn't have to be. I was, I was created as a fallible human being. And Natura knows everything about me. She knows about long. She knows about me going to fuck up long before I do it. So why do I have to ask for forgiveness? I feel that she, once I do the wrong thing, and I crawl back to her and say, "Oh my God, I'm sorry, Natura." She always welcomes me with open arms, and I nearly get the feeling that she 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 feels really good by the fact that I need her, and I realize now that it's because of my imperfections that I need a God in my life that I need other people as well. I had a sponsor at some stage said to me that people were created as pack animals and 
the reason that we are imperfect is because we are packed animals. Had we been created perfectly, we wouldn't need each other. And because of our imperfections, we need others. And I really like that. So there is nothing like perfection. I am not perfect. It took me a long time, about two years in recovery, until a counselor sat me down one day after I was really struggling. And he said to me, you know what? It's time for you to listen to me. And what I'm telling you is that there is no recovery 201. This is it. There's the 12 steps and we do that and we do the best of our ability and to do it for the rest of our lives. And that's good enough. So there's no recovery 201. Just stick with 101 and you'll be okay. And the second thing he told me was that um, I'm not perfect. His words were, Freddie, you're not perfect. You're never going to be perfect. And the sooner you accept that, the better for yourself. And I now come to realize that I was never meant to be perfect. And that's really okay with me now. I'm still hard on myself though. I'm still, yeah, I'm still hard on myself. So I still have negative self-talk, but it's so much better than it ever was. So my spiritual journey ultimately is the 12 steps. It is absolutely the principles as I learned from the 12 steps. The 12 steps for me has become and is an absolute design for living program. If I follow that, I know how to live. In recovery, I've developed this concept of how I felt as a child was that everybody around me, whenever we get born, we get a manual, a manual that's how we live life. And everybody could read their manuals, but I couldn't because my manual was issued in Chinese and I don't read Chinese. So I just never knew how to live life. Everybody around me could, if they come up with a difficult situation, go to the manual, quickly read how to deal with that situation, and then deal with it. But I couldn't because I couldn't read Chinese. But when I came into treatment, I learned the 12 steps for me became my Chinese dictionary. And the more I get to to follow the 12 steps and the more I get to know myself through the 12 steps, the better I speak Chinese and the more I can read my, my manual of how to live life. And Natura is perfectly bilingual. Actually, she's multilingual. So she very, very clearly translates Chinese back to me as well. So I just became better at living. The more I connected with Natura, the more I connected with, with the 12 steps, my life just became easier. Today, I definitely make far, far, far more healthy decisions for myself than I used to do. I still do some stuffed up things, but they're far and in between. Generally, I, I live a good life. I try to be as honest as I possibly can. And through working the 12 steps in NA and AA and SAA and CODA and all those type of things, I've really, I've really come to a life that I never thought I would, I would have. I never thought that I could live quietly in my head, that I could have a sense of serenity. But today I do have that, and I am so incredibly grateful for that. I have, in recovery, qualified as a counsellor. I got divorced very early in in recovery. I think I was two months clean when my then husband asked for a divorce. Divorce went through the, the courts like in six weeks later. So it was very, very quickly. And I stayed clean for a while. I stayed abstinent for a while. And then I made a deal with with Jura that, okay, so I'm doing this. 
but when when the time is right, you're going to give me a boyfriend and you're going to make him fucking awesome. And when I was just over two years clean, I finished my first year of studying counseling and I didn't have money to do the second year. And I was complaining to my counselor about that. And my counselor said to me, so why don't you take the year off? Why don't you not study this year? And it was a very weird concept for me. I, I became very anxious and I said to me, what do you mean not study? So he said to me, Freddie, you've been a, a human doer for long enough. You're not a human doer. You're supposed to be a human being. We're not human doings. We are human beings. So take a year off in your life and be. A few weeks later, I met Yaku. And yeah, we got married two years ago. And I never thought that I could love again. I never thought that somebody could love me. But through the journey of getting to love Natura and allowing her to love me back and getting to learn to love myself, I could love again. And I highly recommend it. I really do. And that is my spiritual journey. I don't think there's anything more or less. It's not complicated. There's no spiritual journey to a one for me. This is it. This is what I do. And this is what I love doing. And I pray, I pray so hard that I can keep on on this journey for the rest of my life. Thank you for listening. Oh, I cannot say I enjoyed this at all. I felt brain dead. I cannot believe how uncomfortable this made me feel. I also felt very emotional whilst sharing my path, but especially during the editing. Not sure why that is, and I'm not my own counsellor, so I shall for now just accept what it was. What came up for me was extremely... What again came up for me was my extreme shame about being gay. This shame was ultimately the foundation on which I tried to build an entity I called Freddy. Today I can choose to look back and say that either I have failed miserably... Or I can treasure the journey and accept that this is the path I had to follow to get where I am today. I actually would not want to change anything about it. Not only am I really happy with my life at the moment, but I also realize how my journey makes me so much better as a counselor. I think my path enables me to really connect with, especially my addict clients, but this road and its destination, which is ultimately this journey, give me a deep sense of connection and compassion for everyone, for which I can feel the gratitude during my sessions. For this journey, I am eternally grateful. If you have any feedback or remarks, please feel free to pop me an email or connect on social media. It will be great to hear from you. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za or find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash freddy.org.za forward slash or on Twitter at at Freddy. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. I want to thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye.